0: and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Mati Friedman has joined us on this podcast multiple times. Last year, he gave us an essential lesson on how to tell fact from fiction about Israel. And when AJC held its global forum in Jerusalem in 2018, he joined us for our first live recording. So I could not pass Jerusalem without looking him up, especially after learning that the writer behind Shtissel is adapting Mati's latest book, Who by Fire, about the late great Leonard Cohen's time on the front lines of the Yom Kippur War. He joins us now in a studio in the Talpiot neighborhood of Jerusalem. Mati, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you for having me. So I take it you're a fan of Leonard Cohen or just as a journalist, you find him fascinating?
1: No, of course I'm a fan of Leonard Cohen. First of all, I'm a Canadian. So if you are Canadian, you really have no choice. You have to be a Leonard Cohen fan. And certainly if you're a Canadian Jew, we grew up listening to Leonard Cohen. So absolutely, I'm a big admirer of the man and his music. what are your favorite songs? Uh, probably my favorite Leonard Cohen song is called If It Be Your Will Mm, which is kind of a prayer that came out on a Cohen album in the 80s but um, but I love all the Cohen you know Top Ten Suzanne and So Long Marianne and Famous Blue Raincoat and Chelsea Hotel it's a very long list
0: I remember you well in the Chelsea Hotel then I went down to So I should clarify that your book is not a biography of Leonard Cohen. It's about just a few weeks of his life when he came in 1973 during the Yom Kippur War. And these few weeks were a real turning point in his life, also for Israel, but we can talk about that later. But I want to know, why is it important? Why do you think it's important for Leonard Cohen fans, for Jews, particularly Israelis, to know this story about him.
1: I think that those few weeks in the fall of 1973, when Cohen finds himself at the front of the Om Kippur War, those weeks are really an incredible meeting of Israel and the diaspora, maybe one of the ultimate diaspora figures, Leonard Cohen, this kind of universal poet and, you know, creature of the village and this uh, product of a very specific moment in North American Jewish life when Jews are really kind of bursting out of the ghetto and entering the mainstream. And we can think of names like Paul Simon and Bob Dylan and, and Phil Oaks and people like that. And Cohen's very much part of that. And he comes to Israel and meets, I guess, the other main trend in Jewish history in the second half of the 20th century, which is the state of Israel and Israelis who are not bursting into you know, a universal culture in the United States. They're trying to create a very specific Jewish culture in Hebrew in this very kind of tortured scrap of the Middle East. And the meeting of those two sides who Have a very powerful connection to each other but don't really understand each other it's a very interesting meeting and the fact that it happens at this moment of acute crisis one of the darkest moments in israel's history which is the yom kippur war that makes it even more powerful so i think if we take that snapshot from october 1973 we get something very interesting about israel and about the jewish world and about this artist and in some ways i think those weeks really encapsulate much of Leonard Cohen's story. So it's not a biography. It doesn't trace his life from birth to death, but it gives us something very deep about the guy by looking at him at this very intense and kind of traumatic moment.
0: Do you also think it sheds some light on the relationship between diaspora Jews and Israel? and, And how has that relationship changed and evolved since the 1970s?
1: When Cohen embarks on this strange journey to the war, which... I mean it's a long story and i tell it in the book but it starts on a greek island where he's kind of a hold up and he's in a crisis and he's unhappy with his domestic life and he's unhappy with his creative life and he kind of needs to escape so he gets on a ferry from the island and gets on an airplane from Athens and inserts himself into this warp when he, by mistake, not really intending to do it. And he says in this manuscript that he writes about that time, which is unpublished until my own book, I published segments of it, he says, I'm going to my myth home. That's how he describes Israel. He uses this very interesting phrase, myth home. And it's hard to understand exactly what he means, but I think many Jewish listeners will understand kind of almost automatically what that means. Israel is not necessarily your home and it's possible that you've never even been there, but you have this sense that it is your mythical home or some alternate universe where you belong. And of course that makes the relationship very fraught. It's a lot of baggage on a relationship with a country that is after all a foreign country and common lands in Israel and has a very powerful, but also very confusing time and leaves quite conflicted about it. And I think that is reflective more generally of, you know, the experience of many Jews from the diaspora who come here with ideas about the country and then are forced to, admit that those ideas have very little connection to reality. And it's one reason I think that you know I often meet Jews who are here from, you know, from North America and they're, they're often fascinated by the country, but they're kind of thrown off by it because it doesn't really function in the way they expect. It's a country in the Middle East. It's very different from Jewish life in North America. And as time goes on, those two things are increasingly disconnected from each other.
0: Yeah. Which is something that I think you say, Israelis say repeatedly that, you know, lots of people have opinions about Israel and decisions that are made and how it's run, but they have no idea what life is like here, right? That's part of the disconnect and the reason why there's so much tumult. Yes, and
1: it runs in the other direction too, of course. I mean, Israelis just have less and less idea of what animates Jews in the United States. So the idea that we're one people and we should kind of automatically understand each other and that just doesn't work anymore. I think in the years after the Second World War it might have worked better because people were more closely connected by family ties. So you'd have two brothers from Warsaw or whatever and one would go to Rehovot and one would go to Brooklyn. But they were brothers and then in the next generation, you know, their children were cousins and they kind of knew, you know, something about each other, but uh, a few generations have gone by and it's much more infrequent to find people who have Israeli cousins or American cousins, you know, it might be second cousins or third cousins, but the familial connections have of kind of frayed. And because the communities are being formed by completely different sets of circumstances, it's much harder for Americans to understand Israelis and for Israelis to understand Americans. And we're really seeing that play out more and more in the communication or miscommunication between the two big Jewish communities here and in the United States.
0: So this is my first trip to Israel. And many people told me that I would never be the same after this trip. Was that true for Leonard Cohen? I think it was. I
1: think it was a turning point in his life. Of course I wrote a book about it, so I would have to say that, even if it weren't true, but I happen to think that it is true. He comes here at a moment of of real kind of desperation. He had announced that he was retiring from music that year. So he had this string of hits and he was a major star of the 60s and early 70s. And those really famous Cohen songs that I mentioned, most of them had already come out and he'd been playing at the biggest music festivals at the Isle of Wight, which was a bigger festival than Woodstock. And he was a big deal and And he'd just given up. He thought that he'd hit a wall and he no longer had anything to say. And he was 39 years old. So that's pretty old for a rock star. And in those days, of course, people were dying at 27. So he'd kind of, he thought he was washed up. And he came to Israel and he writes in this manuscript, this very strange manuscript that he wrote and then shelved, that he thinks that Israel is a place where he might be able to be born again or to sing again. He writes both of those thoughts and in a very weird way it happens. So he's too sophisticated a character to tell us exactly how that happened or to ever say that he went to Israel and was saved or changed in some way. Leonard Cohen would never give us that moment that, of course, as a journalist I'm looking for, but he won't give it to us. All we can do is look at the fact that he had announced his retirement before the war, came home from this war very rattled, not at all waving the Israeli flag and singing the national anthem or anything like that, but he came back invigorated in some way. And a few months after that war, he releases one of his best albums, which is called New Skin for the Old Ceremony, which is a reference, of course, to circumcision, which is itself a kind of wink toward rebirth. And that album includes Chelsea Hotel and Lover, 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 and Who By Fire. And he's back on the horse and he goes on to have this absolutely incredible career that lasts until he's 80 years old and beyond.
0: You may come to me in deepest pain, or you may come So let's talk about Lover, 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 and the line of that song that you had interviewed a former soldier on the front lines in the Yom Kippur War. He had heard Leonard Cohen sing, was very moved by that song, which was composed on an Israeli Air Force base, I believe, originally. And then the album comes out and he hears it again, and something is different. And the soldier's not happy about that. Can you talk a little bit about how you confirmed that?
1: Right, so I spent a lot of time trying to track down the soldiers who'd seen Leonard Cohen during this very weird concert tour that he ends up giving on the Sinai front of the Yom Kippur War. And it's this series of concerts, these very small concerts, mostly for just small units of soldiers who are in the sand. And suddenly Leonard Cohen shows up in a Jeep and plays music for them. And it's kind of a hallucinatory scene. And one of the soldiers told me that he you know, will never forget the song that Cohen sang. And it was on the far side of the Suez Canal. So the Israeli army, having kind of fallen back in the first week and a half of the war, has crossed the Suez Canal in the great counterattack that changes the course of the war. And now they're fighting on Egyptian territory. And one night on the far side of the canal, he meets Leonard Cohen. He's just kind of sitting on a helmet in the sand playing a guitar. And he's singing a song that would later become famous, but no one knew it at the time because it had just been written... As you said, it was written for an audience of Israeli pilots at an Air Force base a few weeks before or a few days before. And the song's lyrics dress the Israeli soldiers as brothers. And that's what the soldier remembered. And he said, I'll never forget it. He called us his brothers. And that was a big deal for the Israelis to hear an international star like Leonard Cohen say, I'm a member of this family and you're my brothers. And that was a great memory, but there's no verse like that in the song, Lover, Lover, Lover. And there's no reference at all that's explicit to Israeli soldiers. And there's the word brothers does not appear in the song. At least the one on the album, the song. It's on the, the albums, album. right. So that, which is the one, you know, the only one that was known at the time that I was writing the book. And then, and I kind of set it aside. I just figured that it was a strange memory that was, you know, mistaken or manufactured, and I didn't think much more about it, but I was going through Cohen's old notebooks in the Cohen archive in Los Angeles, which is where many of his documents are kept, and he had a notebook in his pocket throughout the war and was writing down notes and writing down lyrics and writing down people's phone numbers, and in the notebook I found the first draft of Lover, 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 and this verse, which had somehow disappeared from the song. And the verse is a really powerful expression of identification, not uncomplicated identification, but definitely sympathy for, for the Israelis who he was traveling with. He was traveling with a group of Israeli musicians. He was wearing something that looked a lot like an Israeli uniform. He was asking people to call him by his Hebrew name, which was Eliezer Cohen. So he was definitely, he'd kind of gone native. And the verse, the verse goes, I went down to the desert to help my brothers fight. I knew that they weren't wrong. I knew that they weren't right, but bones must stand up straight and walk and blood must move around and men go making ugly lines across the holy ground. It's quite a potent verse and it definitely places Cohen on one side of the Yom Kippur war. And when he records the song a few months later, that verse is gone. So he obviously made a different decision about how to locate himself in the experience. And ultimately, the experience of the war kind of disappears from the Cohen story. He doesn't talk about it later on. He very rarely makes any explicit reference to it. The Cohen biographies mention it in passing, but don't make a big deal of it. And I think that's in part because he always played it down. And when that soldier, Shlomi Gone, who, I mean, I call him a soldier, he's a guy in his seventies, but you know, for me, he's a he's a soldier. He heard that song when it came out on the radio and he was waiting for that verse where Cohen called the Israeli soldiers his brothers and the verse was gone. And he never forgave Leonard Cohen for it, for erasing that uh, expression of tribal solidarity. And in fact, the years after the war, 1976, Cohen's playing the song in Paris. You can actually find this on YouTube. And he introduces the song to a French audience by saying, he admits that he wrote the song in the war in Sinai. And he says he wrote the song for the Egyptians and the Israelis in that order. So he was very careful about, you know, where he placed himself. And he was a universal poet. He couldn't be on one side of a war. He couldn't be limited to any particular war. He was trying to address the human soul. And I uh, think he was aware of that contradiction, which I think is a very Jewish contradiction. Is our Judaism best expressed by tribal solidarity, or is it best expressed in some kind of universal message about, you know, the you know, shared humanity of uh, anyone who might be reading a Leonard Cohen poem. So that tension is very much present for him and it's even present for many of us.
0: So he replaces the line though with watching the children. He goes down to watch the children. Right. Fight, so right? before he
1: erases the whole verse, he starts fiddling with it. And we can actually see this in the notebook because we can see him crossing out words and adding words. So he has this very strong sentence that says, I went down to the desert to help my brothers fight, which is, you know, it suggests an active participation in this war. And then we see that he's erased that line, help my brothers fight. And he's replaced it with, I went into the desert to watch the children fight. So now he's not helping and it's not his brothers. He's kind of a parent at the sandbox, watching some other people play in the sand. And so he's taken a step back. He's taken himself out of the picture. And ultimately that whole verse goes into the, you know, gets memory hold. And it only surfaces when I found it and I, I had the amazing experience of sending it to the soldier who'd heard it and didn't quite remember the words. He just remembered the word brothers. And over the years, I think I thought maybe he was, you know, he was mistaken or he wasn't 100% sure that he was remembering correctly. And I I had the opportunity to say, I found the verse. You're not crazy, here's the (laughs) verse. And it was quite a moment for him.
0: Yeah, confirmation, validation. certainly not an expression of solidarity anymore, but I read it as an expression of critique of war. You know, government sending sons and daughters off to fight, you know, that, that kind of critique. But it changes it when you know that he erased one sentiment and replaced it with another.
1: Right. Even finding the Yom Kippur War in the song now is very complicated, although when you know where it was written, then the song makes a lot more sense. Like, you think a song called Lover, Lover, Lover would be a love song, but it's not really. If you listen to the lyrics, you know, he says, "...may the spirit of this song, may it rise up true and free, may it be a shield for you, a shield against the enemy." It's a weird lyric for a love song, but if you understand that he's writing it for an audience of Israeli pilots who are being absolutely you know, shredded in the first week of the Yom Kippur War, it makes sense. The words start to make sense, the kind of militaristic tone of the words and even the kind of rhythmic marching quality of the melody. It it starts to make more sense if we know where it was written, although I think Cohen would probably deny. Cohen never wanted to be pinned down by journalism. You know, he wasn't writing a song about the Yom Kippur War, and I don't think he'd like what I'm doing. Which is trying to pin him down and, and tie him to specific historical circumstances. But that's what I'm doing. And I think it's very interesting to try to locate his art in a specific set of circumstances, which are, you know, the Yom Kippur War, this absolutely dark moment for Israel, a Jewish artist who's very preoccupied with his own Judaism. And who grows up in this really kind of rich and deep Jewish tradition in Montreal and then kind of escapes it, but can never quite escape it and doesn't really want to escape it or does he want to escape it? And then here he is in this incredible Jewish moment with the Israeli army in 1973. And we even have a picture of him standing next to General Ariel Sharon, who is maybe the other symbolic Jew of the 20th century, right? You have Leonard Cohen, who's this universal artist, this kind of, you know, man of culture, kind of, kind of dissolute poet. and. And you have this uniformed general, this kind of Jewish warrior, this kind of reborn new Jew of the Zionist imagination. And we have a photograph of them standing next to each other in the desert. I mean, it's quite an amazing moment.
0: I love that you used the word hallucinatory earlier to describe the soldier coming upon Leonard Cohen in the desert, because it reminded me that it was not Leonard Cohen's first tour of sorts in Israel. He had been in Israel the year before, 1972, gave a concert in Tel Aviv, and Jerusalem, very different shows. Can you speak to that?
1: So Cohen was here a year before the war. And what's amazing is that you can actually see the concerts because there was a documentary filmmaker with him named Tony Palmer. And there's a documentary that ultimately comes out very briefly, is shelved because Cohen hates it, and then resurfaces a couple decades later. It's called Bird on a Wire. And it's worth seeing. And you can see the concert in Tel Aviv and then the concert in Jerusalem the next day, which are the end of this problematic European tour, which kind of goes awry as far as Cohen is concerned. In Tel Aviv, they have to stop the concert in the middle because there's a riot in the audience, and there, for first, that's kind of a strange technical reason, which was that the arena in Tel Aviv had decided to keep the audience really far away from the stage, and people tried to get close to Leonard Cohen, and Cohen wanted them to come closer to the stage because they were absurdly far from the musicians, and they tried to move closer, but the security guards wouldn't let them, and you know, people start fighting, and Cohen's begging them to calm down, and you can see this in the documentary, and then ultimately he leaves the stage. He says, you know, it's just not, I can't perform like this, and he and the whole band just walk off the stage and you get the impression that this country is on the brink of total chaos like it's a place that's out of control and then the next day he's in jerusalem for the last concert of this tour and the concert also goes awry but this time it's cohen's fault and he he's on stage and you can see that he can't focus like he just can't put it together and in the documentary you see that he took acid before the show so it might have had something to do with that but also it's just the fact that he's he's in jerusalem and for him that's a big deal and he just can't treat it like a normal place. It's not a normal concert. So there's so much writing on it that um, it's too much for him. And he just stops playing in the middle of the concert and he starts talking to the audience about the Kabbalah. And it's an amazing speech. It's like totally off the cuff. It's not something that he prepared, (laughs) but he, he starts to explain that in the Kabbalistic tradition, in order for God to be seated on his throne, Adam and Eve need to face each other or the man and the woman need to face each other in order for the divine presence to be enthroned. And he says, my male and female sides aren't facing each other, so I can't get off the ground. And it's a terrible thing to have happen in Jerusalem. That's what he says. And then he leaves. He says, I'm gonna give you your money back, and he leaves. And instead of rioting, which you'd expect them to do, or getting really angry or leaving, the audience starts to sing. That song from summer camp that everyone knows, and I think they just assumed that he would know it. And in the documentary, you see him in the dressing room trying to kind of get himself together, and here's hears the audience singing a couple thousand young Israelis singing the song out in the auditorium. And he goes back out on stage and kind of just beams at them. He just kind of, he can't believe it. And he's just smiling out at them. They're entertaining him. Like he's on the stage and they're singing to him. And then the band comes back on and they give this incredible show that ends with everyone crying. Like, you see Cohen's crying and the band's crying. And he says later that the only time that something like that had ever happened to him before was in Montreal when he was playing a show for an audience that included his family. So there was a lot going on for Cohen in Israel. It wasn't a normal place. It wasn't just a regular gig. And that's all present in his brain when he comes back the following year for the war.
0: Makes that weird decision to get on the ferry and come to Israel make a little more sense. I had tickets to see Leonard Cohen in 2013. He was in Chicago. And Pope Benedict XVI decided to resign. And as the religion reporter, I had to give up those tickets and go to Rome on assignment. And I really regret that because he died in 2016. I never got the chance to see him live. Did you ever get the chance to see him live?
1: I wonder if we should add that to the long list of, uh, you know, Jewish claims against against Catholicism. But I guess we can let it slide. I never got to see him. And I, I regret it to this day, of course, when he came to Israel in 2009, for this great concert that ended up being his last concert here I had twins who were barely a year old and I was kind of dysfunctional and hadn't slept in a long time and I I just couldn't get my act together to go and that's when I got the idea for this book for the first time and I said oh you know just catch him the next time he comes or you know the guy was in his late 70s what there wasn't there wasn't going to be a next time obviously so it was a It was a real lapse of judgment, which I regret, of course.
0: (laughs) I do wonder if I should have gone to Rome for that unprecedented moment in history to cover that. I kind of wish I'd been at the show. So you do think that the Jerusalem show played a role in him returning to Israel when it was under attack?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he had this... Very, again, complicated, powerful, not entirely positive experience in Israel. And he'd also met a woman here. And that also became clear when I was researching the book that there was, uh, there was a, a relationship that began when he was here in 1972 and continued. And, and he had this—he had a few contacts here and it wasn't a completely foreign place. And he had some memory of it and some memory of it being a very powerful experience. But when he came in 73, he wasn't coming to play. So he didn't come with his guitar. He didn't bring any instruments. He didn't come with anyone. He came by himself. So there's no band, there's no you know crew, there's no PR people. He understands that there's some kind of crisis facing the Jewish people and he needs to be here.
0: You know, I interviewed Mishi Harmon yesterday about the Declaration of Independence, the series that they are doing, and he calls it one of the, Israel's last moments of consensus. We are at a very historic moment right now. How much did this kind of centrifugal force of the Yom Kippur War, where everybody was kind of scattered to different directions, very different ways of soul searching, very Cohen-esque, <laughs> how much of that has to do with where Israel is now, 50 years later?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. The Yom Kippur War is this moment of crisis that changes the country and the country is a different place after the Yom Kippur War. So until 73, it's that old Israel where the leadership is very clear. It's the labor Zionist leadership. It's the founders of the country, Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir and the people who kind of willed this country into existence against long odds and won this incredible victory in the 1967 war. And then it's all shattered by this catastrophe in 1973. And even though Israel wins the war in the end, it's a victory that feels a lot like a defeat. And 2,600 soldiers are killed in three weeks in a country of barely 3 million people and many more are wounded. And the whole country is kind of shocked. And it takes a few years for things to play out, but basically that old Israeli consensus is shattered. And within a few years of the war, the Likud wins an election victory for the first time, and it's a direct result of the loss of faith in the leadership after the Yom Kippur War. That's 1977. And then you have all kinds of different voices that emerge in Israel. Um, So you have, um, you know, you have Likud, you have the voice of Israelis who came from the Arab world, who didn't share the background of, you know, Eastern Europe and Yiddish, and who had a different kind of Judaism and a different kind of Zionism. And they begin to express themselves in a more forceful way. And you have Israelis who are demanding peace now, you know, on the left and you have a settlement movement. The religious settlement movement really kind of becomes empowered and emboldened after the Yom Kippur War, after the labor Zionist leadership loses its confidence. And that's when you really start seeing movements like Gush Emunim pop up in the West Bank with this messianic script. And so the fracturing of that consensus really happens in wake of the Yom Kippur War. And you can kind of see it in the music, which is an interesting way of looking at it, because the music until 73 had really been this folk music that still maybe the only place that still sees it as Israeli music might be you know, American Jewish summer camp where it kind of retains its hold. And, you know, that those great old songs that were sung around the campfire and the songs of early Israel. And that was very much the music that dominated the airwaves. And after the Yom Kippur war, it's different. The singers start expressing themselves a lot less in the collective we and much more, you know, by using the word I and talking about their own soul. And you hear a lot more about God after 73 than you did before. And the country really becomes a much more heterogeneous place and a much more difficult place, I think, to to run. and. That consensus, you're talking about the Declaration of Independence and, and that series, by the way, by Israel Story, which I highly recommend. It's a wonderful series about an incredible document, which we still should be proud of and which we should pay much more attention to than we do. But when do we have consensus? When we're under incredible pressure from the outside. The Declaration of Independence is signed you know, as we face the threat of invasion by five Arab armies. So that's basically what it takes to get the Jews to sit down and agree with each other. And, you know, there are these years of crisis and poverty after the 48 war into the 60s, and that kind of keeps the consensus more or less in place. And then it it fractures. And we're in a country where it's much easier to be many different things. You know, you can be orthodox you can be Mizrahi, and you can be gay and you can be all kinds of things that you couldn't really be here in the 60s. But at the same time, the consensus is so fractured that we can barely, you know, form a coherent political system that works to solve the problems of the public. And we're really seeing that in a very dramatic and disturbing way in the dysfunction in the Knesset in our political system, which is, you know, has become so extreme that the political system is simply incapable of serving a constructive role in the society. And it has moved from solving the problems of the society to creating problems, for a society that, you know, probably doesn't have that many problems. And it's all a reflection of this kind of fracturing of the consensus and this disagreement on what it means to be Israeli, what the meaning of the state is. Once you don't have those labor Zionists saying, you know, we are part of a global proletarian revolution and you know the kibbutz is at the center of our national ethos. Okay, we don't have that, but then what is this place? And if you grab 10 Israelis on the street outside the studio, they'll give you 10 different answers. And increasingly those answers are are at odds with each other, and Israelis are at odds with each other, and the government instead of trying to ease those divisions is exacerbating them for
0: political gain.
1: So you're right, this is a very important and I think very dark moment for this society.
0: And do you trace it back to that kind of individualistic approach that Cohen brought with him and that the war, not that he introduced it to Israel and it's all his fault, but that the war and its very dark outcome, dark victory, if you will, produced?
1: I don't want to be too deterministic about it, but definitely that is the moment of, of fracture. And, and, you know, the old labor Zionist leadership would have faded anyway. And just looking at the world, you know, that kind of ethos and that ideology is kind of gone everywhere, not just in Israel. But definitely the moment that does it here is is that war. And we're very much in post-1973 Israel, which in some ways is good. Again, a more pluralistic society is good. And I'm happy that many identities that were kind of in the basement before seventy three are out of the basement. But we have not managed to find replacement for that old unifying ideology.
0: And, uh,
1: and we're really feeling it right now.
0: Thank you so much, Mati, for joining us.
1: Thank you very, very much. That was great.
0: If it be your will If there is a choice Let the rivers fill if you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for a conversation with authors Candace Bazemore and Gabby Leon Spat about their award-winning children's book, Shabbat and Sunday Dinner. Before they attended the relaunch of the Congressional Caucus on Black-Jewish Relations, they joined us to talk about building stronger bridges between the Black and Jewish communities. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, And hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.